All right, you are listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. This is Justin Vaughn. I'm a professor at Boise State University. I'm here with uh, Corey Cook and Jen Schneider, the dean and uh, also a professor at Boise St- State, uh, respectively. We're all in the School of Public Service, and we're your co-hosts of the Big Tent New Public Affairs Program here on Radio Boise. Uh, we're, there's obviously been a lot going on in the world the last week, and including some really awful stuff that I imagine all of us have been paying attention to. In Florida, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of that stuff, but but from a, a, a particular perspective, we're going to talk about some ideas that have been entangled in explaining what's happening there and what's happened and what's continuing to happen there and elsewhere. Uh, ideas about things like uh, white privilege and toxic masculinity and white fragility and so on. Um, Jen, why don't you uh, get us started a little bit talking about some of these ideas, how they play together, what they are, what these words mean. We hear them a lot, but... Yeah, so <clears throat> I was um, just thinking, well, first of all, I should say that, you know, I think our hearts go out to everybody who's thinking about that the shooting in Florida, and to teachers and to parents and students um, who are struggling with what it means and how to move forward. Um, but I guess I was thinking about, in particular, about my so- social media feed and the explanations that are appearing there for what's happening around things like these shootings. And I think the thing that I realized today is that something that almost everybody across the political spectrum is preoccupied with right now is the question of whether or not there's a crisis of masculinity happening. So on the far right, for example, there are places on the internet called the manosphere. I don't know if either one of you is familiar with that. No. But sort of an entire... (laughs) internet ecosystem that's interested in figuring out how to defend white masculinity from um, feminism in particular. And then I think on the left, you have things like the Me Too movement or um, uh, accusations about toxic masculinity when it comes to thinking about President Trump, for example. So I thought it might be interesting today to have a discussion about why we're having questions about masculinity today. Um, so I think that, that uh, yeah, you're, I, Corey and I are on the same page. We agree with you. Um, and, uh, there's lots of, there's lots of explanations for what happened, right? Ranging from, uh, easy access to firearms, to a culture of violence, to, you know, bad parenting, to video games, video games, to teachers not having enough weapons, to, uh, toxic masculinity. Why do you, you know, in the, and if I don't know if they think about this as a quantitative social scientist, and we've got there, you know, in in descending order, the number of, of variables that help explain the the frequency of this phenomenon. Where do you think that toxic masculinity or that that dimension of our culture fits in? Just um, for sake of background, we've had nearly a hundred mass shootings now in the last twenty years, and all but two of them have been per- perpetrated by 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 men. I think one was uh, a man and a woman together. It was the San Bernardino. Other than mm-hmm. that, there have been two women who have perpetrated uh, these these mass shootings. And so I think that's one of the reasons that people are starting to think about sort of some of these explanations. Yeah, in particular, I was thinking about um, an editorial in the New York Times by Michael Ian Black today, who's um, a comedian, uh, but he's also known for having a very sassy Twitter account. Um, and basically the editorial I thought was very heartfelt And he was talking about how he has a 16-year-old son who sometimes is filled with rage 
uh, as 16-year-olds sometimes are, whether they're boys or girls. But raising that son, he doesn't have sort of tools or skills for talking to his son about what to do with that rage. And so I think if you couple something like, uh, you know, a young boy who maybe doesn't have a, lot, have a lot of skills or a lot of resources for managing rage, and you couple that in some cases with mental illness and then access to firearms, I think people are starting to think, well, maybe there's something here that doesn't just have to do with gun control. It does have in part to do with that, but also has to do with these cultural, these cultural factors. And the fact that so many of these shootings are being perpetrated by young white men, I think, is not escaping notice. So there's also that sort of race issue that's being laid on top of it as well. So um, there's a number of these ideas, these concepts, and they all kind of work together, I think. They're not unrelated to one another. But let's, can we maybe talk a little bit about them and what, what, they, what they mean? Because I think we hear them a lot, and they sometimes are used interchangeably. They, as academics, we get irritated when concepts are used inappropriately, right? <laughs> what, so what, what, what is exactly toxic masculinity, and how is it you know, linked with but also distinct from something like white fragility? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, my sense, Corey, you should jump in, but my sense is that toxic masculinity refers to the sense that um, men in particular do not have sort of outlets for expressing emotions like anger other than through what might be thought of as culturally sanctioned expressions like violence, right? So uh, if I'm a man and I feel really angry and I don't have any other way to express that anger other than through violence, then we're going to see things like domestic violence. We're going to see things like shootings. Is that your understanding right. of toxic masculinity? And then I think on top of that, at this particular moment, we're also seeing things like um, white fragility and white grievance. So there's a great essay out by, um, I think he's a, in a criminal justice department, but his name's Mike King. And he talks about how at this particular moment... We have a lot of folks in this country, white folks in particular, who feel that they are losing out, right? They've lost socioeconomic status. People are asking them to recognize their privilege. Um, they feel like people are asking them to recognize that they're guilty for things like slavery. And so that is emerging as anger, right? As a sense of loss. Um, and when you feel like you've lost something and you can't do anything about it, then you identify as a victim. And that, I think, is what wh white fragility is about. So um, Robin DeAngelo is a scholar, I, th I believe, at the University of Washington. She was on campus at Boise State this fall, and she's the, the person who coined this term of white fragility. And it sort of operates um, you know, similar to white privilege or, or white nationalism or white supremacy. Her basic argument is, is that um, you know, most white folks don't have to deal with issues of race and essentially have... Uh, avoided any conversation about their privilege or opportunities, and when they're confronted with those issues, whether that's in the form of you know NFL players protesting the national anthem, or um, you know you know economic insecurity, uh, confronted with issues of race, they become deeply fragile <coughs> in terms of why why are you suddenly calling attention to something that I haven't lived with before. And so her point is that we sort of need to have open conversations and have better understandings about how race operates. 
structurally in society or otherwise, essentially white people are in this fragile position where they're beneficiaries of privilege and yet incapable of addressing it in any meaningful way. Hmm. So I'm going to throw another one of these words out that we hear a lot um, that um, oftentimes is not clearly understood by people. And that's microaggressions, right? We hear that. And we're on a college campus, so that word is used more often, I think, than probably it is in other places in society. What what is what what does that mean? Well, I have a com a complex response to thinking my, about microaggressions. I mean, I I um, personally find myself very sympathetic to concerns that we're not paying enough attention to things like white privilege. I try to pay attention to my own white fragility, my own privilege, things like that. Um, I think the problem with a lot of microaggressions training and microaggressions are sort of. Uh, way, small ways in which, let's say, a teacher might make a student uh, feel uncomfortable or, or sort of uh, pull them out for gendered or raced reasons. Um, I think the problem with doing microaggressions training is that if you don't uh, um, address the grievance problem first, the sense that white folks themselves feel as if something's being taken away, it's hard to operate from a, a place of generosity or compassion enough to acknowledge that you might have hurt somebody else on the basis of race or gender. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those are my, that's my thought about that. Okay. So interesting. Thank you very much for helping us think through some of these ideas and how they, how they work. We'll probably, we might come back to some of those things later in the show, but we're going to take a quick break after we're back. We're going to have our, our guest of the week on with us. It'll be uh, Mr. Philip Thompson, who's the director of the Idaho Black History Museum. He's going to tell us about some of the stuff they've been working on um, and where they're uh, where and, and, and what's going on um, this month and the future. Uh, and uh, we'll hear more from him. So um, we'll be back momentarily with uh, Philip Thompson. Stay tuned. You're listening to Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Community Through Radio. And we're back uh, with uh, that statement of violence. Uh, I didn't know that was coming, but it plays really nicely into our last conversation. This is Justin Vaughn. I'm here with Jen Schneider and Corey Cook. You're listening to The Big Tent on Radio Boise. And today we have with us Philip Thompson. Philip's the director of the Idaho Black History Museum. Philip, thank you for coming down to the station and talking with us today. Uh, thank you for having me. So... Um, for those of you who have not visited the Idaho Black History Museum, I really recommend it. It's a really interesting place. It's, it's um, it doesn't take a lot of your time to go through it, uh, but I think you'll you'll be you'll you'll find some really interesting things out about the state that we live in, um, and one of the, and and it's also a unique approach to um to being a museum. Right? I think it's a little bit different than most kinds of small museums that that I visited, and and that's not an accident, is it, Philip? No, I think that um, I'm not from the museum world, so I took a much more um, entrepreneurial approach to um, running the museum. Because as much as I love museums, I'm a bit of a nerd. Let's be completely honest, museums aren't the most exciting thing to visit. And if you're under the age of 40, you're not really incentivized to do so. I mean, you're with other nerds right now, so we, we all took that really personally. <laughs> I'm not a nerd. But overall, I think that... Um, Museums tend to exist as an edifice to themselves as opposed to really serving the community in which they reside. And what's most important is to be like a living, breathing, actively used and utilized. And someone comes to your museum once, they should want to come again shortly thereafter as opposed to, oh, I've been to it a year ago. I need not go until next year. And so um, rather than trying to keep it like static, we leave one half of the museum static, but then the other half we change periodically and really try to keep it in tune with what's going on politically, whether it be nationally or globally, 
and talk about how that um, resides or affects in Boise. Can you or, give us an example of the, what the sort of living side is looking like right now? Um, well, right now, of course, with the passing of MLK Day and Black History Month, um, we've done a display um, featuring that. But speaking to the latter part of his career, that some people often missed because by then he was vilified and kind of pushed pushed out of the limelight because he started talking about things that were actually a threat to the power structure, which was bringing poor people together on the basis of their shared um, need as opposed to dividing among racial lines. And then um, he became the poor people's brigade or the poor, the benevolent community idea of trying to empower and empower those who are the disenfranchised who are left out whether it be poor whites poor blacks the poor as a whole and then he also came out speaking out against the war and those two things really became um less than popular with the powers that be and then he became kind of ostracized and pushed out of the fold and that poor people's brigade pardon me lost strength once they vilified martin luther king and we've kind of lost sight of that currently You've, they found a way to divide the poor against each other as opposed to us working together to resolve our um, mutual problems. Well, what's that, what sort of connections do you see between that and what's going on in national politics, maybe, or local politics then? Um, identity politics is almost a direct um, result of this notion of turning the poor against each other. Mm -hmm. Because if the poor get together and galvanize against the rich, it doesn't matter which party you're from or who you're with, we see that neither one of you are gonna help us, you're both systems of control, and you'll hold their feet to the fire and they're actually looking for some help. But if you can vilify a group of the poor and say, hey, those poor are keeping us down, um, but this person's for us as opposed to against the other, so we're gonna vote this man in this past election into power, hoping that he's gonna serve our community, but, um, not necessarily looking at the fact that are there policies, ideas, et cetera, actually going to help your segment of the population, but you use identity politics to pit the two against each other. And that's exactly what happened in the last election. I mean, people who really, I think, wholeheartedly felt that they elected somebody who was going to help them pull themselves out of despair, um, that was less, that has not come to fruition, and they use identity politics to do so. And so if we could see through the mirage and see that no we have poor people problems then we need to collectively address them as opposed to b the blame game or this group's um, worse off or it's their fault we're having all these problems and see that we have a collective good that needs to be addressed and vote accordingly and I'm not advocating either party for doing so I'm just simply saying that you've got to have a um, bit of truth when you address these issues and not fall for the um, sleight of hand pitting one against each other so i think that col word collective is important you know especially with some of the things you do you you as an individual as, as a museum collaborate with lots of different entities um whether it's schools or the police or university researchers um talk a little bit about some of the uh, community activities and, and, and initiatives you you're up to um we're, we're rather fortunate that in boise you've got a uh, unique set of social variables coming together for a rather freakishly beautiful existence, right? I mean, we were a conservative state with a somewhat more liberal city, but traditional background, but um, accepting of the other at the same time. And so you can work with these different institutions to really bring about change. So as um, Justin spoke of, we work with the police, the Ada County Sheriff's and the Boise Police. Um, last year, they had a MacArthur grant 
because they want to check to see if they can lessen jail populations. And as that study um, progressed, they had to see if, in fact, there were disparities along racial lines in Boise, Idaho, with arrest rates, criminal justice system, et cetera. Now, Boise only has like a 1% population that is, you know, product of descendants of slaves, um, African-Americans, for lack of a better word. But we represent almost 4% of all stops and interactions with the police. And from that point of interaction, everything from there is worse. Whether it's an offense that you could be ticketed for as opposed to arrested for. If you're black, you're arrested. If you're white, you're ticketed. Um, the fine for that given offense is more if you're black. The time spent in jail is longer. I mean, from that point on, everything is worse if you're black or a person of color. Fast forward to um, them getting the grant this last year. They're currently working within the judicial system to try to lessen those disparities and try to address what's the underlying cause. Because I was one for, um, I was one who bragged on how remarkable Boise is, because blacks actually live above the socioeconomic norm here, and so I had no idea that such a thing existed, nor did they. But the fact that they came out and said, "Hey, we found the statistical anomaly that we have a problem, let's fix it," I applaud them for it. Um, Boise State University, for example, um, we worked with them on a couple of different projects. Um, you came and spoke on our um, patriotism versus. Uh, patriotism versus protest, mm -hmm. that um, there seems to be this false dichotomy that if you're patriotic, thou shalt not protest, and if you protest, you're not patriotic, which always fascinated me because the country was founded upon a protest, right? And so we had a discussion, and I purposely invited those from all ends of the political spectrum to let their voice be heard in a uh, public forum at the museum and disallowing anybody from vilifying those who had an opinion that maybe wasn't popular because we tend to be more left-leaning, you know, supporters. But let their voice be heard and let their reasoning be heard because I don't care about how you feel, but we need to get to why you think that way. And so what's the underlying thought process? Because then we can find some intersection to actually talk. If we're going to worry about attacking the idea, we're just going to go back and forth badgering each other about I'm right, no, no, you're right, and not looking at why we think such and such way. And so by doing those things, we've been able to um, pull in groups that typically may not want to talk to each other and have a much more open, objective conversation rather than att attacking the idea and really addressing the underlying problem. And so we've been rather lucky that, um, as you said, from the universities to um, left and right-leaning political groups, um, the chief of police came and spoke and the Ada County Sheriff addressed the public at our museum twice, um, ACLU, um, senators, you name it. We've kind of become a... Um, social activism hub, which to me serves the purpose of what the museum is supposed to be, because it being a former black church, that's what it did. It was kind of the end-all, be-all, catch-all for the black community. And so it should still serve that purpose for the um, greater Boise community. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, you want to stick with us for a few more minutes? Absolutely. Great. And so we'll be back. We'll hear a little bit more about what kinds of things are coming up here at the Black History Museum. And uh, we'll be right back. Stay tuned. This is 89.9 FM, community radio for Boise and beyond, because what you listen to matters. We're back. This is Justin Vaughn. I'm here with Corey Cook and Jen Schneider. And today we're with Philip Thompson, director of the uh, Idaho Black History Museum. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about some of the things that the Black History Museum has been doing in the past. But what do you have coming up uh, in the future? I'm currently we're involved with, um, I always mess up the title of it, Read Me Treasure Valley or Treasure Valley Read Me. And um, they actually did the kickoff at uh, the museum, and they will be lecturing at a couple museums. Where, um, pardon me, a couple of the uh, library branches around town. 
um, from Lake Hazel to One and Star. And their book this year is The Underground Railroad, which was also the Humanitarian Book Club book this year that's by Rediscover Books. Mm -hmm. And um, to be completely honest, I'm not a fan of fiction by any stretch of the imagination, but I had to read the book for the book club. And I was pleasantly surprised that it was um, an actually, of course, going to be entertaining, but it was actually a very powerful book. And so the Treasure Valley Read Me is using that book to um, for their book this year. Underground Railroad, we're doing a, a presentation with the staff from the planetarium about how the stars were used to navigate up north. And so it's, it's going to be pretty cool because I think that even though we live in a beautiful place, we tend to forget how gruesome slavery was. And this book pulled absolutely no punches trying to convey how um, inhumane the conditions were, even though it's fiction, he used you know historical fact to write it, how inhumane the institution of slavery was, and um, the little uh, analogy of an underground railroad in the literal sense was quite cool, getting these people up north. It was a very good book. So books are actually pretty important to what you guys do. There's a lending library in the Absolutely. back of the museum. It's got, I mean, some really fascinating uh, books that people can come in and borrow and learn more about, all sorts of different things. And I think that... um. We live in Boise. It's a beautiful place to be. But we're kind of isolated from any sense of like the historical or the national um, discussion around race, racial animosity, et cetera, et cetera. Like we have our isolated incidents up here, but we don't have institutionalized slavery that kept people A, living in B neighborhood, kept people C, living you know in this part of the um, city. And so we don't fully understand how some of these problems that play out in other cities we don't understand the underlying mechanism of what caused that. So some of the books we have in the library are, are, are speak directly to that issue, you know, redlining, um, busing, housing, uh, World War II, the fact that blacks didn't get uh, the GI Bill to buy houses, you know, this establishment of wealth, et cetera. We don't have a very expansive library, but we try to keep it concentrated on those issues that really speak to how we got to where we are now. You have any other events coming up at uh, at the library in the next few weeks? Um, the library events will be in March for the most part because Black History Month is kind of hectic, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think March seventh, March tenth, there's like a litany of uh, events coming up. It's on the um, Treasure Valley Read Me. They've got them all marked out. To be cool. honest, I can't recall the exact dates, but I want to say tenth and seventh. And then at the museum, after we'll um, come to the end of uh, Black History Month, we're going to go into uh, Malcolm X and. Boise has a rather unique heritage with the uh, refugee resettlement, and we're one of the most successful resettlement destinations in the nation. And people tend to um, miss that. And the national narrative that Idaho is somehow this bastion for hate and that things are so terrible here, I personally take offense to that. Um, because even just yesterday, I had to go, I had to, I was fortunate enough to go lecture down at a CSI, mm -hmm. and I went to the mosque there that just lately had the little cross mm -hmm. issue with the bacon on the cross and I met with their spokesperson and we spoke at great length and he's from either the Congo or Chad I don't recall he came here as an engineer hmm. years ago he and I are both under the um, idea that Idaho is the promised land he said he's been from Delaware to down south to you name it nowhere measures up to even he's in Twin Falls Idaho huh. so it's not quite as liberal as Boise but he has nothing but fabulous things to say about um, Idaho. And he said, if this little cross with the bacon on it is as bad as it gets in our level of, you know, religious intolerance, we'll take that. <laughs> because his community, their community has grown pretty um, strongly over the last couple of years because they're also a refugee relocation destination. 
he had nothing but laudatory things to say about Idaho. And he said his entire community would say the same. And so it's antithetical to this narrative that everyone else seems to try to push for Boise and for Idaho as a whole, that we are somehow the bastion of hate and things in Idaho are so bad. And I personally take it as a challenge to um, change that narrative because Idaho, the world's best kept secret. Yeah, I, I like living here. You guys like it. Uh, oh, man, every time I go up to Stanley and I look at the sawtooth, I just think, oh, this country is the most beautiful country exactly. in the world. But that said, the politics are complicated here, right? Particularly, as you said earlier, when we're talking about things like race, the conversation is not always as advanced. And there are uh, certainly efforts, I think, to... Um, roll things back. We spent the first part of the show talking about sort of white grievance and white privilege. And I think those things are definitely operational here. Um, But I I really appreciate hearing your perspective, too, in the sort of a forward-looking, more optimistic community-building perspective. I think it's really helpful. So, Philip, people want to learn more about the uh, the Idaho Black History Museum, check it out. Where can they find you online? Um, IBHM.org. IBHM, such as Idaho Black History Museum dot org, <laughs> and uh, the we have a Facebook page as well, as well, which is I believe IBHM. Wherever you look it up on Facebook, I'm people can I'm, I'm not. I don't do Facebook. It's not my <laughs> swagger. Or just <laughs> pull do open the search the, tab. That's there you go. A search tab, go. and Idaho Black History Museum will be the only one that comes up on that listing. I would be. I would assume. And when and where are uh, where um, in, in in terms of the physical location? Oh, Julie Davis Park. Um, right next to the um, Idaho State Museum that's in the process of being renovated. And uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we are open. Awesome. I strongly encourage you to check it out. It's a really interesting place. Uh, thanks very much for being out with us. Thank uh, you so much for having me. Thanks, Corey and Jen, for, for coming coming thanks, in today. Uh, on behalf of them, um, we will uh, thanks for listening, and we will be back with you next week.